Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting show for you folks today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is Chris Dixon, founder and general partner of A16Z Crypto, the crypto fund of Andreessen Horowitz. We've got a lot to cover today, and we really appreciate Chris coming on. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, so this is really quite the end-of-the-year treat for not just myself, but all the folks tuning in today. We're going to be discussing Chris's perspective on the crypto market today, some of their recent activities and investments, how their thesis might be changing, and of course, Chris's outlook for 2023, and a whole lot more. But before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Huobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset management services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Huobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Huobi.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at Ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest Chris for coming on the show today. We're both sort of, well, Chris, you sound a lot, whole lot better than me, but I'm grappling in the midst of some sort of uh, cold of sorts. So I'm going to try to bring just as much energy as I normally do. I have my, it's a mix of a ginger peppermint. I had to get a little peppermint in there for the holidays that will help me navigate this conversation. But in any case, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And hopefully I, I am getting over a cold, but I think I'll be okay. And hopefully I won't sneeze or cough or anything, but um but thanks a lot for having me. I think you'll be fine. What's so, I don't know if the word is funny or mm-hmm. interesting, but the first time we ever met was right before the whole credit crisis kind of gripped this entire market. And I remember it was right as, I don't think the news of Celsius had dropped yet, but there were mm-hmm. kind of rumors amidst in the market about them having some mm-hmm. difficulties. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the timing, but... I remember us talking about it and we were going back and forth about Celsius. So much has happened Mm -hmm. since then, almost a decade of events over the course of the past half year. What sort of your general sense of the market, right? You have a crypto capital markets in turmoil, but in some respects, that's separate from maybe the the venture landscape in as much as the day-to-day decisions you guys are making. Yeah, no, it's been quite a year. I'm happy to talk more about that. But the, um, I mean, the basic framework I would use for both kind of what we do, you know, in our crypto investing, but I think it's also just something I, I would apply more generally to venture capital. And maybe we can talk about it a little bit later, but it's important to say that we do venture capital and that that is a, it's a different time horizon in venture capital. It's more of a 10 year time horizon versus let's say a hedge fund that might be kind of more trying to predict things happening three or 12 months out. 
like we're much more trying to predict things that are going to happen five years plus. Um, but my general experience throughout my career has been there's really two different kind of things happening at any given time. There's what's happening at the technology level and the entrepreneur level. And then the separate thing is what's happening in the capital markets level. And there's some relationship between those two things, but it's not, you know, it's certainly not a one-to-one relationship. And so, for example, you know, I started my career as an entrepreneur in 2000, like kind of my real career in 2003. Um, and that was the downturn of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. So, Amazon hit, I think it was $6 a share. You know, the sentiment was very negative. The markets were very down. Um, And in retrospect, that was possibly the best time in the last, you know, few decades to build an internet company. Um, Again, like 2008, um, you know, total crisis, you know, VC firms saying RIP. I co-founded a seed venture fund in 2008, nine called Founder Collective. And we started investing in mobile apps and, you know, in retrospect, that turned out to be a fantastic time. Why? Because because the iPhone came out, right? The iPhone came out in 2007, the App Store in 2008. And if you go look at all the top apps, the vast majority of those were created between 2008 and 2011, right? Um, and so it just, and this is just sort of a general pattern throughout the history of technology that for entrepreneurs, the kind of the main thing that matters is kind of big platform shifts, new technologies. I felt for a long time for, and I've been blogging and writing about this for 10 years, that there's sort of three major trends on the horizon, you know, crypto blockchain, which is what I do. Um, and I think is, is a, you know, extremely important trend, uh, AI and new devices like virtual reality. And I think it's, and if you look historically every 10 to 15 years or so, there's a major new computing trend. There were mainframe computers, mini computers, PCs, uh, internet, mobile, it's been, you know, 15 years since the iPhone came out. Uh, and I think it's now happening that sort of we're on the cusp of all of these kind of major changes. And it's just a very, very exciting time on the technology side. Um, now, th- that's in stark contrast to what was a-, a pretty bad year across the board, I'd say, in both the crypto and the non-crypto capital markets. I mean, by the way, this is not unique to crypto. Like, this is almost all high, high growth tech companies, you know, now, now it's, it's spread to Google, Facebook, et cetera, have had tough years. They've had layoffs, you know, and, and like this, particularly the layoffs. And then of course, in the crypto side, the fact that, you know, consumers were affected by some of these bankruptcies and things, these are not at all, you know, these are, these are obviously very bad things and for the people affected. Um, but if you zoom out and you look at the broader tech trends and what's happening, kind of with among entrepreneurs, I think there's some very strong things going on. Happy to dive into the specifics, you know, in our area. But I, I think that a lot of the kind of tech trends are very positive right now. Why do you think crypto gets singled out in that respect where you have yeah. this backdrop to your point of all of tech getting crunched? You yeah. look at stocks like Carvana or Netflix are all down over 70%. In the case of Carvana, I think it's down something like 95%. It's pretty intense. These are intense drawdowns. Is there a reason why crypto sort of gets singled out for its more negative price activity as well as the more bearish outlook for some of these projects and companies? It's a good question. I I think, I mean, I'm curious on your take on it. I think that uh, part of it is uh, just for the same reasons, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Like crypto also gets positive attention because it's sort of understandable, relatable, interesting, new. I think most people would 
probably have stronger opinions around whatever, you know, Dogecoin or an NFT project than they would about a used car sales company or something. So it's just kind of more <laughs> relatable. Um, so I think that's part of it. I, look, I also think that, it, you know, crypto, as we know, has become very controversial. Uh, and I think, I, like, I think it's, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see what next year, what happens with AI as AI breaks out. My own view is that tech has just become much more political. Mm. And I think this is going to about to happen to AI, where you're going to see this sort of massive, the same kind of controversies are around NFTs, you know, sort of some creative people saying, you know, these are bad for us or something. I think you'll see a similar kind of uh, attention focused on AI. So this, I think there's just sort of naturally a tendency to focus on big, new, important things. I think also, you know, the tech industry um, it used to be the pirates. Now it's the Navy, some people say, like, meaning, you know, it used to be sort of Steve Jobs and this sort of rebel group. And they were small and niche and building kind of products for, you know, smaller markets. And now some of these tech companies are very, you know, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. These are huge companies that are important. And so sort of everything in tech is under the microscope. And the more, the newer it is, and the more kind of energy, both pro and con around it, the more attention it gets. I think this is going to be a recurring pattern, not just focusing on crypto, but kind of all major new tech trends are going to have this kind of controversy around them. Yeah, it's interesting because there's these trade-offs, right? I I saw, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, the AI of um, mm -hmm. of Morgan Freeman sort of speaking. I did. I did saw that, yeah. That was, I mean, a, people could think that's scary. Yeah, NFTs, I know, their, I see it. Their I mean, counterpart is maybe the energy usage. So each of these innovations have their yep. their scary flip That's side. right. That's right. They have, and they have, you know, look, all of these, any technical change affects jobs. So like that that alone, and AI in particular, right? You look at that and you say, okay, um, I think there have been movies with this where like the actor, you know, they, they aren't there, I forgot, there's some famous sci-fi movies or something where like the actor, you know, they have avatars that play the actors and you see that Morgan Freeman thing and you're like, wow, you know. 10 years from now, are they going to just automate acting, right? Or Morgan Freeman can be an actor for the next, you know, millennium. Yeah, for the fact, for, for, for <laughs> he's an eternal actor, um, which would be great for fans. I don't know if it'd be great for for the artists. You know, I think, like, and I think that the with the jobs thing specifically, there's this asymmetry, right, where it's very easy to imagine the jobs that would go away when you see a new technology, mm -hmm. and it's harder to imagine the new jobs. So I, I, like, kind of, to me, the canonical example is when the web came along, there was a lot of controversy around it is it going to kill graphic design print graphic design but if you look at the stats it actually it did do that i mean it, it didn't kill it but it it reduced it but it created far more web design jobs in its stead right but it's harder to imagine in 2000 you know, 20 years ago social media manager or uber driver or like all these things that we take for granted today it's harder to imagine them back then and i think it'll be a similar thing with ai there'll be i don't think the ai will do it by itself like for example creating you know drawings and illustrations and things like this, it will need people to to help it. And it will just sort of elevate what can be done and and help automate it. Um, but, but my guess is it's not going to in any way reduce the number of uh, of kind of creative jobs. In fact, it just it will change the nature of them though. And that will and that will create stress for for some of the people who need to make a transition and that becomes political um, and crypto is very political. There's the energy use thing, which I, you know, I don't think, I mean, the, there's the energy use kind of thing, which now, you know, as you know, with Ethereum and the merge is not actually an issue anymore for NFTs. It's basically the only major proof of work blockchain now is Bitcoin and there aren't NFTs on Bitcoin. 
but I think it's broad. I think it's more, it's political with, a, with sort of a capital P. It's, it's political in the sense of like, it's now a thing that's talked about it, you know, in mainstream culture and in political circles. And um, it just gets a lot of attention and it's easier to understand. It's more relatable. And then you have, look, you have the FTX kind of stuff and everything else, which just high profile cases of wrong, you know, malfeasance that add another dimension to the story and make it something people want to talk about. Focusing in on on the FTX situation, I think it raises mm -hmm. an interesting point about the role of a venture capitalist in society, right? One mm -hmm. talking point or point of conversation that I've seen crop up in the past few weeks is maybe the venture capitalists in the crypto space specifically did not do a good enough job doing their due diligence or maybe kind of fed into the hype cycle to an extent that it got way too over its skis. Obviously, when you're investing in companies like you can't really be a good VC if you don't if you're backing companies that you don't think are going to be multi-billion dollar companies. That's the reason why yep. you do it because you have a 7-year or 5 to 7-year outlook, mm -hmm. which is good. Like I wouldn't want to give money to a VC who goes out and sort of, you know, poo-poo's aspects of like my business model publicly. I would want constructive feedback directly as the entrepreneur, but there might not have been enough of even the latter happening in the case of FTX. Like I can't imagine the folks on that cap table were necessarily giving Sam a hard time. Uh, I think I can say that. I don't think that's a speculative thing to say. So I guess the, the question here is, do you think VCs need to be more skeptical or critical or does that kind of like chip away at like the actual function of, especially with a tech, venture capitalist is? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, one, like, I, I think um, it's good to have, you know, there's, there's a reason behind kind of corporate governance and having a board of directors, having financials, having, you know, a bunch of other things. And these things are important. And, you know, we do strongly encourage that and, and try to always have that. We were not involved in FTX. And, you know, I think I'd say a couple of things with regard to that. I mean, look, fundamentally, like I, I think some of your points are valid, but fundamentally, this is the job of the regulators, in my view, is to make sure that if you are offering a product to retail customers who, you know, can get access to that in the U.S., that that follows certain standards. Um, and, you know, why was FTX based in the Bahamas? You know, I think it was based there uh, for regulatory reasons. And you know, I think one of our sources of, look, I was involved with Coinbase for a very long time. So a lot of my views on things like FTX are colored by that. And at Coinbase, you know, the board meetings were, I want to say 70% about finance, security, compliance, very heavily regulated company. This idea that you hear from some critics that, you know, companies like Coinbase are not regulated. They're just completely divorced from the facts. Uh, and I think that's good. And I, that's why, you know, they should be regulated because my view of this space, right? The real innovation is the fact that you can now have things like DeFi where assets are custodied on chain. That is a breakthrough innovation that you can now trust software instead of trusting people to custody your assets. And the most of our kind of investments in this space are around on-chain constructions like that. For example, Uniswap, Compound, things like that. And I think that's a really exciting thing that's going on. That said, you need these kinds of bridging technologies like companies like Coinbase, right, who help you go and kind of onboard into that full custody world by providing fiat rails and everything else. And those companies cannot simply rely on on-chain 
assurances, right? They have to do other things. My belief is for the, and this is how we've invested throughout, you know, for the last 10 years. So this is not like a new thing that's changed with FTX. My belief is you'd have to be one or the other. You have to be on chain. So Uniswap would be the canonical example there, or you need to be off chain regulated in a country like the U.S., have audited financials, have one-to-one customer uh, assets, uh, you know, in a highly secure custodied way and anything in between sort of like if you're offshore and I mean, you know, not regulated, like that's a problem. So fundamentally to me, that's, that's the job of the regulators to assure that you have in an ideal regulatory regime, you would require one of those two things off chain with proper financial security compliance or on chain with proper code auditing and security and everything else, as opposed to, uh, in, you know, in a random location with who knows doing finance and who knows doing compliance and everything else. Right. So I, I don't know, like I wasn't involved with the company. I don't know what the VCs did there. Uh, but I, I think fundamentally that to me is the role of regulation in this space. There was an article in fortune, um, in November penned by Jeff John Roberts. He wrote, uh, at least the headline was Andreessen Horowitz dodged the FTX bullet. Uh, was that skill or luck? So I'll, I'll raise I mean, the question to you. Was that skill or luck? Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll tell you the, as I mentioned, a lot of my view was informed by Coinbase. So my, my experience at Coinbase, and, and look, we didn't even, I mean, to, just to tell you, like we had, I have had maybe an hour of Zoom with Sam my life and never met him in person and we never got beyond an initial meeting. So like, it wasn't just like we didn't, it's like we never really frankly took it seriously. And the reason, the reason we didn't, at least I didn't, is that, I was involved with Coinbase for a long time. And my experience with Coinbase was that every year or two, you'd have a new, it was kind of this game of whack-a-mole where there'd be a new offshore going back to Mt. Gox. Um, going back to, and if you remember, really old school, like Cripsy was the sort of original mm-hmm. Binance. I, I, had, I, I was a customer of Cripsy and lost mm-hmm. money there uh, when, they, when they disappeared one day. Um, so there was always these sort of offshore exchanges and like people would say, oh, they're so much more innovative than Coinbase. They move so much faster. They're so much more nimble. But my view of it was sure, because they cut out 70% of the business, the security compliance and finance part. And so of yeah. course they're able to add, and they don't like do proper analysis of the tokens they're adding. Like, are they securities and all these other kinds of things that add a lot of, I mean, this is a lot of what a, a trusted company like Coinbase is doing. And so that was my view. And it was, you know, Bitfinex and BitMEX and Binance and FTX. And it just was always some new thing. And I saw it as sort of this tortoise and hare thing where like they would come and, you know, pop up and do these things. And why are they in the Bahamas? Like, why are they where? I don't even yeah. know. Where's Binance? Like, I don't, do you know? I don't, maybe, you know, I don't know where they are. I, I don't Dubai. know. I don't know who audits them. I don't know. So for me, it was just like that. Like, what's the tech innovation? Like, what's new? It's just, it's mm-hmm. Coinbase without compliance, security, and finance based in an offshore place. So that, look, I mean, I, I don't know if that's skill or luck, but that was, you know, a, 10 years of involvement in the space and a view that we'd formed, which I think with a lot of work and diligence. Um, I'm not saying, you know, that we won't have train wrecks in our portfolio. We have a something like 100 crypto investments. Like statistically, there will be issues, but we, you know, we try very hard to kind of go in and invest with a thesis and identify real tech innovation and, you know, institute proper governance and things like that. But, um, so I, like, I don't want to, I mean, 
No, it's a, it's a, it's I, a, I never it's thought, a, I never knew it was answer. a fraud or something. I, I mean, I didn't have any evidence and I'm not going to make yeah. any claim about any other company because I don't have, I, I just fall, you know, get my news from you and other people about these things. Yeah. Um, but I just think if, if you don't have those, if you don't have one or the other, if you don't have on-chain trust and you don't have off-chain regulated trust, I don't, I wouldn't put my money there. It's a lot of red flags in hindsight. Thinking about just Sam's own shilling of the low headcount in hindsight. Yeah. You were able to keep headcount low because you weren't hiring a CFO or any, uh, you know, folks managing financial controls. I want to, yeah, I remember for a long in. time, like Coinbase, I was involved with Coinbase during the time when Binance rose and a lot of how Binance rose was they added a whole bunch of assets and like, why didn't Coinbase do this? And the outside critics would always say, because they're slow from the inside. No, because we have, you know, they have this massive compliance legal regulatory framework that they have to I put I would say there through. was even a bit of tension internally about that. Yeah. I mean, Being it's more Binance like. And by the way, security, like doing it all with cold storage, like why are they slower to have, you know, various features like staking and things like this? Because it's very hard to do that in a, you know, compatible with a highly secure cold storage system. Right. Anyway, so I'm not like I'm a little bit partisan here on the side of Coinbase because I feel like they just did all the heavy lifting. Um, but um, and look, maybe and maybe trolls. there'll be comp competitors who Good figure out how to be more nimble with the controls. But, you know, I haven't seen it yet. Wobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Wobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, building the go-to hub for the next billion crypto users. Wobi believes crypto shouldn't have any barriers to entry. Wobi is committed to asset and platform security to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and and your assets. Learn more today at Wobi.com. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin back loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Athletic Greens. Recommended by professional athletes with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and probiotics. It helps me start my day. I mean, I'm on the road a lot, reporting on a 24-hour market, so I need some sort of boost to keep me energized throughout the day. Who knows when a story is going to drop on my desk? Anyway, tons of people take multivitamin supplements, and I've realized it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. As someone who's tried a bunch of different multivitamins and has still felt tired and run down, Athletic Greens has made a huge difference for me. But anyway, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com scoop. Again, 
That's athleticgreens.com slash scoop to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, I want to focus in on the media portion for a second, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if this is a a meme or or a trope that, you know, A16Z is somewhat Mm -hmm. wary of media, but if you juxtapose the treatment that Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Powell got from media relative to Mr. Bankman-Fried, there was a chasm of respect, I would say, (laughs) or, or rather a chasm between the respect that the former two gentlemen received and Mr. Bankman Freed received. What's your own explanation for that? I have a theory, um, but I'm curious to hear yours. Oh, wow. That's a, <laughs> this is a, this is a, a juicy topic. Let's see. Um, I can go first. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you go first? Um, so the way I think about it is this is also kind of speculative. It's just my, like my loose theory is that most of the reporters covering um, like a Coinbase or a Kraken were more technology reporters in Silicon Valley who have kind of seen a lot of firms blow up, which is kind of the nature of, you know, tech startups. Not many make it, so they're a bit more hard-nosed. Whereas the people covering Sam, it was a wider range of... Sort of culture. And- of coverage, of, yeah, culture and like business reporters... And so since they were making so much news, they got and had broader coverage. It was more favorable treatment. And then also, I think this is fairly controversial. I think his prototype fit more with like what a reporter is. Yeah, I think one way to look at it is tech tech coverage used to be about technology, right? So you had like Walt Mossberg and these other kinds of famous reporters who would, David Pogue, who would go and review products, right? You rarely see that now. Now everything is political and cultural. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is, you know, Brian is, was, you know, especially after his, um, you know, a lot of the negative coverage started after he did this uh, memo that was sort of saying, you know, you have to sort of limit politics at work. Um, and that was perceived to be you know, at one side of the political spectrum. And then that sort of coded him as, as, um, that side. And I think Sam sort of coded as the other side. So I, like, I think everything, I I think the only way to understand media coverage today is to look at it through kind of the lens of politics, culture, and all these other things going on. I don't think it's like it used to be where there was like a tech section that talked about tech. I think everything is sort of about everything now. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I do think it was disappointing, the coverage. I mean, I think, and I think it continues to be around Coinbase. Uh, I think people don't understand the company. I think they don't understand, like, uh, you know, Brian has been uh, headstrong, focused, and and methodical for almost a decade now. And and I think that's really been important in the space that's, you know, the, a space that's so volatile. And you have so many sort of hot new things come along, and he's remained undistracted. And I don't, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Thinking about the firm specifically A16Z crypto Mm -hmm. or the sort of family of funds, Mm -hmm. how have sort of the targets changed? What sectors are you looking at? Mm -hmm. I know originally it was sort of payments, decentralized finance, new ways for creators to monetize. Is that 
pretty much the same or has it evolved? Yeah. So, I mean, the kind of the basic framework I use for thinking about our investment areas, first, there's the, the big split is applications and infrastructure. So we have, you know, we do both and we have, and we, and we sort of have practice areas in both and I can happy to talk about each, but I think the infrastructure side, that means, you know, layer one blockchains, layer twos, bridges, wallets, all the different things you need, the sort of tooling that you need to build applications. Um, and so like today, I think we announced, uh, our investment in Aztec, which is a, a, a privacy layer two. We, you know, we've, I think a lot of exciting stuff is happening around the Ethereum ecosystem right now. Um, I think there's some exciting new layer ones. Uh, I think that we're at a point maybe for the first time in the history of crypto where the infrastructure is good enough to support an application, you know, that, that has tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of users, which is exciting. I don't think that was the case before. And then there's the application layer, which is sort of what you allude to. I think they're certainly, you know, finance, DeFi is, remains a very interesting area. Uh, payments has always been kind of a area talked about a lot in crypto, going back to Bitcoin um, and, and somewhat, I think somewhat disappointing, but I think is also kind of sneaking up on us and especially around mm. USDC, you know, international use cases, support from sort of premier companies like Stripe. Um, so I think there is some progress there. Uh, we're, we're investors in a, a company called Lightspark, which is David Marcus, who's the former CEO of PayPal and mm -hmm. uh, ran the DM project at Facebook, who's doing a really interesting thing based on Lightning on top of the Bitcoin network. I think games are very interesting right now, Web3 Gaming. We probably have, I think, on the order of 15 games um, that I think only like one or two have launched. So there's a whole bunch of launches coming up in the next 12 months with games that I'm excited about. These things range from, and by the way, these are, the way I would kind of describe it is three years ago, people building Web3 crypto games were typically crypto people who were game enthusiasts. The The 15 companies I just described um, are people coming out of Blizzard, Riot, you know, Valve, top tier gaming teams who have decided that they want to either build kind of traditional games with that include things like NFTs or in the more kind of extreme case, and I think more exciting case, where they're building fully on-chain games um, that have all that 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 can allow for things like what I would describe as sort of modding on steroids, where people can take the game and and fork it and add to it, and it becomes the game becomes sort of built by a community instead of built by a company, and and I think that's really exciting. Um, and I think stuff around NFTs, I think kind of moving into the, I think of NFTs as taking crypto out of just the financial world and moving it into the media world, which is just a, just a bigger world. Objectively, there are more people in the world who are interested in media than in finance. Um, and I think a, a path to get us to a billion people actively engaging with, you know, crypto, uh, it is probably goes through media in some way. Um, I think there's a bunch of interesting new social networks getting built. Like, so we're, we're involved with Farcaster, which is a, um, uh, I think a really interesting new architecture that's it's kind of a little bit of what sort of Jack Dorsey is alluding to when he talks about Twitter should be a protocol, except it works today. It's real software and I think is architected in a way that's far superior to, to, to some of the things that are sort of talked about by um, Jack and others. Um, so, but I think that area generally lends, there's a bunch of others there that I think that are really interesting. How would you delineate the benefits of decentralized social 
Yeah, I think I think the two would be I would say money and power is the two things. So <laughs> let's talk about take rate. So take rate's a very important concept. So when you build a network, you build a social network like Facebook or TikTok or YouTube, there's something called a take rate. And the take rate is the percentage of money that flows through the network that the network operator takes for itself. And so the take rate on YouTube is uh, 45%, 45%, right? So the the creator gets 55%, they take 45%. TikTok takes 100%. Twitter takes 100%. Facebook takes 100%. So what does this mean? It means, you know, like go back and for those who are sort of have been around in tech for a while, remember Zynga as an example. They built an active gaming platform Mm -hmm. on Facebook and then Facebook took all the money away. So we live in an era where the current, the social networks are owned by companies and they have extremely high take rates. That creates a disincentive to build on top of those networks. And so what you end up with is, I think of it as sort of networks that look kind of like theme parks in the sense that they're centrally mm. top-down managed and no one wants to build on it. There's been no venture capitalists. I can tell you right now that, that our firm and others do not build, do not invest in things anymore that are building on these networks, on these corporate networks like Facebook and TikTok and things, because they know, we've seen before, that they just, if you're successful, they'll just take all the money, right? Mm. So that's the money part. Then there's the power part. Who gets access? You know, do you, do you think it's good that one person can buy Twitter and decide then change all the rules? Like you may, you know, like look, we're, I mean, our firm's involved with Twitter, and like you know, you may or may not like Elon Musk. My point would be, no single person. But it is a little scary. Yeah, no single person should have that power, in my view. Have you said that to Elon? Yeah, I have. And I've, I mean, I've said it to anybody. I'll say that everything I'm saying here, I'll say in private. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just fundamentally enough. don't believe any person should own this. I think it should be like, if you go back and look at the history of the internet, you know, email and the web were not owned by, there's no company behind those, right? They're owned by the community. And, you know, the community of people that software developers who build email clients and email access points decide on the changes to the protocol. I think that was a good so way to do it. Tech so that, that, that's the, I, I actually would say, you know, so what are the benefits? The benefits are, the near-term benefits are money. How does the money get distributed? And I think these decentralized social networks can be far better for creators, developers, et cetera, building on the network because they can get a lot more money and they can build real businesses the way they built real businesses on the web and email. But also I think there's a kind of broader societal implication around how do we govern these networks that have become core infrastructure and critical parts of our lives. So where did the tech world go wrong in as much as everything? I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think the tech landscape has been more centralized. Yeah, it's a good question. Was it well, just that crypto didn't exist or, or something else? Yeah, I mean, I do think, so I think of it as there's three ways to build. So my basic thesis, and frankly, what motivates our fund and why I get up every day, I, I believe this very strongly, is that the thing we do with the internet, like you don't interact directly with the internet. You interact with networks built on top of the internet. So email is a network, the web is a network, YouTube is a network, Twitter is a network, Facebook's a network. These are all networks. Uniswap's a network, Ethereum is a network. Networks are the things we do with the internet. And in my view, there have been there are basically three major ways to build networks. There was the original way that we built networks, which is how government and academia built email and the web. These are protocol networks. They have protocols that are standards and they're effectively run by the community, right? Then we built corporate networks. I was involved with this, right? I that I was sort of the web two era, we call it. And this is the early 2000s when it really kicked off. And it turned out with corporate networks, you could do a bunch by having the network owned by a company. So take YouTube as an example. You know, YouTube is a network that could have been a protocol. It could have been something around RSS and everything else. And in fact, there were people trying to mm-hmm. do that. I was there, right? There were people trying to create open YouTubes. 
the problem with the open YouTube's is they couldn't compete with the with the corporate YouTube because the corporate YouTube did things like subsidized hosting. That was that was YouTube's big growth hack in the beginning was they subsidized hosting, um, and so you could have free hosting on YouTube and then but then distribute it on your own website before they had distribution on YouTube and that was their hack. It was called I call it come for the tool, stay for the network. It's a hack to kind of get a bunch of people mm-hmm. on there and then they started saying, hey, now that you're already hosted here, don't you want to show it to YouTube users? And that was their kind of growth hack. So for a bunch of reasons, basically from 2003 on, you still had a f- battle between particularly RSS, which is this open protocol, and these corporate networks like Twitter. Um, but but for a bunch of reasons, the corporate networks won, including the fact that they could raise venture capital and fund and subsidize a whole bunch of things, whereas RSS was like a loosely banded group of volunteers. Like it was just not a fair fight. I think now we have this big breakthrough, which is you can now build networks on top of blockchains. And that's what something like Uniswap or Ethereum and other things are. And these social networks could be. And to me, the the best, the good thing about blockchains is that blockchain networks are so important is they combine, in my mind, the best of features of the corporate networks and the protocol networks. They distribute money and power to the community in the same way that email and the web did. And that has a whole bunch of, I think, societal benefits. But they're able to compete on a level playing field with corporate networks by doing things, for example, by raising money. If you look at something like Uniswap, they can do airdrop to users. They have a DAO. Exactly. They, they can. I was just going to say they have availability yeah. of the same degree. That's of right. That's very, very important. I mean, I was there for, look, I was a proponent of RSS and I remember this. I was on that side in 2008. I was on the losing side and we just could not compete. And now we have the tools. I believe we, meaning the sides of people that want things to be open and community owned, through blockchains now have the tools to rival corporate networks and beat them. And I think we can actually leapfrog them because look, I think one of the really beautiful things about, about let's take Ethereum as an example, or Uniswap as an example, is you have, because of airdrops, because of community ownership, you've got this army of true believers, right? You don't have an army of true, you have people on who use YouTube obviously as users and as YouTubers, but outside of that, outside of the actual like traffic they have and everything else, like nobody's like, I love YouTube, I evangelize it the way they love these crypto networks, right? So I think we have a lot of potential real advantages. I think, um, anyway, so that that's kind of my my broad thesis and I could go on and on about it. I don't know how much time we spend on it, but. Is that just because of ownership? Like the incentives are more aligned? I think that's a big part of it. I think it's partly architectural. You're not, you know, you're, the data is not sitting in a corporate data center, right? You're sitting on a blockchain. I think it's a much better architecture. It's open. It's you use encryption, not sort of hiding stuff behind a firewall as a, as a security method. I think it's much more inclusive from both a financial and a control point of view, right? So you have the financial part is people can own a piece of the network through tokens, but then also the control side is you can have community governance, which, you know, admittedly, we're still figuring out, like, I don't think we figured out the best ways to do governance. I think it's an active area, but I think having, I think it's important that we're now finally having like 40 years into the internet, we realize how important networks are. We should have a conversation about how they're governed. It's frustrating to me that this conversation is only happening within the crypto community. I don't understand why it's not happening more broadly. It seems like one of the more pressing questions. I think the tacit assumption among the broader world is that the only way to build networks is by having a company own them. And that's just simply not the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just sort of seems to be what all the discussions assume. And so, so I think it's both, I think it's money and control, those two things, right? So it's how the, you know, and my view is people feel left out. If you look at something like Dogecoin, like, so Dogecoin, I think it's an interesting case study because it was designed by the creators to, to not have any purpose, right? So the product quote unquote is sort of you know, the silly meme coin, right? Um, but you have this mm-hmm. community of passionate people. 
Um, and I think one reaction to that is just, this is silly and, you know, ridiculous. I think another reaction to it is, wow, this is the power of ownership mm. that people feel left out. I mean, think about all the people that helped the drivers who helped build Uber and the homeowners who, you were an early Airbnb homeowner who helped build that network. You were an early driver who helped build Uber. What did you get for it? You got nothing, right? In general, if you were mm -hmm. around, you were early Twitter user, you're early, any of these things, you got nothing. People feel left out, my view, it's my view, broadly. This is, and this is the appeal of something like Dogecoin. Now, Dogecoin's a silly product, doesn't do anything. But if you take that feeling of ownership and that feeling of inclusion and you combine, like take Ethereum and you combine it with a really, Ethereum is a really important and powerful product. It's a, you know, global computer, shared computer that anyone can write smart contracts for. And so Ethereum is a good example where you take a really powerful product and you combine it with a sense of like, hey, if you help build this, you can own a piece of it to, to an audience of internet users who have felt left out for the last 10 years. That's a very, very powerful force. And what I'm excited about right now in terms of trends is I, I think the way that crypto kind of goes, kind of my mental model for the crypto world, there's kind of two cultures. There's tech crypto and money crypto. If you look at the last two years, in my view... DeFi summer 2020, I, I think you had some really great tech that launched. Um, so Compound, Uniswap, a bunch of really interesting things, you know, Yearn, sort of building composability around those protocols. Um, and then at some, and then you also had later in the year, you had a bunch of really interesting NFT stuff start. You know, you had some of the early PFP projects. Top shot, you know, a bunch of I thought interesting new NFT kind of experiments, the the rise of OpenSea and other marketplaces. But then at some point, maybe end of twenty twenty one, I believe kind of money money crypto kind of took over, and it just became you had some silly NFT projects and a bunch of other. And just the if you just look at the attention on Twitter, it started to be not about the tech and the products, but about the money. And so when you ask me to look ahead, I think one thing that I do. You know, I, there's a lot of bad news this year. I think some of the good news is there's a lot of really interesting things getting built. And because the markets have cooled down, I think of it as like the other side of crypto is now rising up again, the tech side, and people are focusing again on that stuff. And I think that's real. Like and I've had, you know, I spend most of my time meeting with entrepreneurs, including entrepreneurs we've already invested in. So as an example, yesterday I had three hour long meetings with existing investments and I, you know, I've, I've come away fired up about what they're building in a way that I hadn't in a while, because I think people were just so, you know, it's like the market's going crazy. They're raising money. They're trying to recruit. It's so hard to recruit when the markets are up. Um, just all these distractions and, you know, a downturn like this focuses people. And so I think we're, I think we're at a really interesting point where the infrastructure is really improved. There's a bunch of really interesting applications that are funded. Um, I think I can say this. We did an analysis um, internal. I say, I say, I think I can say this because I want to make sure I'm compliant. We have we're regulated, um, but we did analysis internally, and I and and it's more than so of the of all of our investments in the history of our crypto practice. It's something like half half of all the products haven't launched yet, meaning a lot of our investments mm -hmm. were recent, and a lot of the companies took you know a long time to build a product. So in other words. Like there's going to be a lot of really within our portfolio, a lot of really interesting product launches in the next 12 to 18 months. And I assume that our portfolio is kind of representative of the broader market. So I think there's just a lot of really interesting kind of core tech stuff happening, which makes me excited about the next year. So can you say like, 
Can you say how much has been deployed? Like how much is sitting on the sidelines? One, for you to deploy, and then two, am I wrong to think or I get the sense that there's just not enough, there's not enough new projects out there or companies to invest in in this space right now. With you specifically, yeah. um, or rather A16Z crypto specifically, I mean, how are you How are you deploying? Yeah. I don't know how much has been deployed, which yeah. is why I asked that first question. But if you've only deployed 50%. No, we've deployed, le- we've, have yeah, we've deployed less than 50%. So we have the majority of our recent fundraise yeah. left. I don't know the exact number actually offhand today, but but so you just have to you can sit on that for yeah years yeah. And years. So one thing I think it's maybe if I could worth explaining a little bit is that so we we have a venture fund we've have, we've have never raised a hedge fund and the, there is, hedge funds and venture funds are very different. Maybe I could give a brief explanation. So a hedge fund for both these funds, you go out and you raise money from what are called LPs, limited partners. Um, the the difference is with a venture fund. So we our venture funds have a minimum of ten year lifespan, which means if you decide you want to invest in our fund, you give you make a commitment to us with money, and you're locked up for at least ten years. And honestly, it's usually fifteen years, and we you know, we we extend it. You can't redeem your money, like you can't. That that's sort of the trade. Mm-hmm. Now there's a there's a trade we make, which is like we, we don't just say, hey, you know, put these added restrictions without giving something. The thing we give is we take a really long time horizon in in um, the assets we, we buy and hold. Um, and we also ourselves, it's, there's something called carry, which is the profits you make as a general partner, which is what I am. Um, and basically the way it works in a venture fund is the carry is delayed a lot versus a hedge fund. Hedge fund, you could make money the next year. Mm-hmm. Venture fund is typically five, seven years or more because of the way the kind of payout structure works. Um, and so, and with a venture fund, once you raise it, you can deploy it over a longer period of time. So I think part of your question is like, if we're finding enough stuff, and I'll talk about that in a second, you know, the worst case is we can just wait and, and deploy it over a longer period of time. Um, and so, you know, in a fast market, a venture fund might go, you know, last year, a lot of people did deployed funds in a year. Um, in a slower market, it could be three years, four years, five years, right? So that's, that's kind of the thing you can do is just kind of stretch it out. By the way, if I could also mention, that I see this speculation like, A16Z, did they like sell tokens? Isn't that so? Over of all of the crypto funds we've ever raised, we added up recently. Over we have we've held over ninety five percent of everything we've ever bought. Okay, so like you know, I think people misunderstand our model. Like if you go and you read about venture capital, there's something called the J curve. Um, So the J curve is is sort of this graph that describes uh, you make an investment. It sometimes you know the portfolio goes down, but then it goes up and looks like a J, right? Like all of our data mm-hmm. shows that like the vast majority of the returns come in the later years of the funds. And 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 the worst the mm-hmm. worst thing you can do um, in venture capital is sell uh, good assets too early. And this has to do with the way innovation works is that you get this, you finally get the motor running. You don't want to shut it down. You want to like crank it, right? Anyway, so so that's how we think about it. So these, these ebbs and flows, like I don't mean to sound like I'm not like, again, like, you know, I'm sympathetic to the people that lost jobs and I understand there's a lot of pain involved, but it doesn't really affect our model. Like we're investing in entrepreneurs. Now to your point about, are there good enough good projects? Like we've done, I believe something like five fresh investments in the last month or two, if just like brand new teams that came off. So, and these are proper series A, series B's, et cetera. Uh, we just did a, we're doing this crypto startup school, which is a, anyone can apply to it. It's a program that we're doing, kind of an accelerator program. We did this two years ago. Two years ago, we did it. We had a thousand application teams apply. This year we did it. We had 8,000 teams apply and they're good teams. We're going through them now. 
And we're going to allow, I think we're going to let like 40 or 50 in just to give you a sense. And these are like, you know, two mm -hmm. kids out of MIT with a breakthrough idea and they're doing it's some like everything from, you know, things you might expect like DeFi to things like decentralized energy production, like whole range of cool stuff. So I haven't seen the excitement slow down in that way. Sometimes with these market downturns, maybe the growth, the kind of later stage stuff would slow down. It has slowed down a little. It has slowed down since last yeah, year, sure. but I, I don't think it's like, you know, it's not so much that it makes me we've question. Gotta, we've got to do some analysis here on the um, number of unicorns that have slipped from that designation. I think when I first had one of our analysts yeah. um, uh, whip that up, we were at 80, not counting protocols. So that wouldn't count Uniswap and the rest. So just equity? Something just like, equity? Just equity. There were about 79 or something like that. I made a bet that there was 100 and I lost. But in any respect... So what about if you wanted to double, I don't know if you can speak to this, mm -hmm. but like if, if let's say you invested in Uniswap and you were really bullish on that, do you have the mandate or the ability to then go buy more tokens of that project on the yeah, open market? Yes, we do. We have the mandate and we've done it many times. I mean, not, I, won't, I can't say okay, specifically yeah. which ones, but yeah. Yeah. So how do you like, how do you manage, um, I guess how do you manage risk in that respect? If if you if you invest in a company early on that also has a token, and it rips really really high, like you know fifteen hundred percent, isn't it almost sort of impractical or not doing the best sort of risk management to not take some off the table? You know, I, you could argue over that. I, I my experience has been just consistently over. 15 years or whatever it's been of angel investing and venture investing that, that you, you don't like, I, I can't tell you how many people sold various hot companies in Silicon Valley at way too low the price. So like there's just endless stories of this. And the, at the time, of course, it seems like it just ripped, you know, Peter Thiel has a great section in zero to one about like, he said something like the best venture deals in Silicon Valley are the ones where like a, t a, a good VC is following another good VC and the price is like five X in a month. And it just seems insane. Like those ones where it seems so insane, like how much it's gone up, it's, it's gone up so much. And it's, you know, assuming it's good investors and they've done their work and diligence and everything else. It's just, you know, companies sometimes hit these points where they're just, they're just hockey sticking. And it seems almost like dizzying if you know how fast their valuation goes up. Um, like what we do, our process is everything is looked at through a venture lens. So the question, what that means is in five to 10 years, can this be at least 10 X is valuable, right? Not three X is valuable, not next year, but like in the long term, like what do we have to believe about the world to believe this, you know, and, and like, and about this project to believe it could be 10 X. And, and I say that that's like, there's a lot of funds out there, like growth funds typically have a three X mandate venture. You have a 10 X mandate. Um, and mm -hmm. so you have to you generally to believe something's 10x, you have to believe that, well, one is you have to have a valuation model. So we, we try to go and like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, contrary, you know, this Frank, but like a lot of outside commentaries think it's all just meme coins and magic money. Um, a lot of these, mm -hmm. for example, DeFi ones, you can, you can reason about them in terms of the protocol growth, the cash flow generated by the protocol. Like there's a bunch of ways you can kind of come up with a, a rough way to think about valuation. And so we do that and we have a, you know, we have a data science team and they go and they do a bunch of analysis and we come up and we say, and we put together a memo and we have a discussion and we say, do we, you know, do we believe there's a credible path to 10 X from where it is today? That's it. And we don't really look at the last three months performance and those kinds of, you know, more momentum trading kind of 
data points. Mm-hmm. We look much more just through that lens of like, do we, what do we believe about the world to believe this? Um, that's it. And then, and, you know, I mean, like, I mean, that's it, but there's a lot of details that go into that, but, but that's sort of a, the way of orienting the framework for thinking about how to make these investments. Sometimes that could be a company at 30, a $30 million post money valuation. And sometimes it could be a company at 3 billion posts, probably not 30 billion posts. Although I think, you know, like mm-hmm. I think Ethereum still, if you believe the strong form of what I described earlier, that, that you could, you know, 10 years from now, the internet will have this substrate of blockchains. Yeah, I think that those. Uh, I, I think if you believe that, and you believe things like Ethereum could be part of that, you know, you could imagine them being venture investments still. That's a really interesting point. You can almost frame that as why Ethereum could still be a venture bit versus. But that's the problem with this space, right? So many of the bets you're making are a mix of venture and sort of liquid trading, right? In a way where you have these early stage projects that are even in some cases, $50 million valuation with like a very visible public market that can be impacted by just someone going on SNL or or saying something on Twitter, which is unique and adds to a degree of volatility. What about people? What are sort of some of the red flags that you can see in an individual or some of the um, values or attributes that you look for in folks who send you a pitch deck or try to hop on a Zoom call to get you to invest i mean I, I really look at the world through the lens of product and technology innovation so for me the question is always does this you know obviously you know having a background that that seems relevant but but often that doesn't mean like you went to school or it means have you done things have you built things for example you know I, we love people that are open source developers or hackers who've done other kinds of things um so, you know, and then I think another th- key thing is, so, you know, do they have kind of a deep um, expertise in in the relevant area? Um, there's a concept, there's another kind of Peter Thiel concept of like, have they, do they have a secret? Have they earned, have they earned a secret? Have they gone out and like spent a few years in an area? It could be in crypto, it could be mm. in the adjacent area and really just understood something that's missing in the world that they want to build. Um, so we look at it a lot through that. What we don't look for is, like we don't expect them to be experienced in business or re- building a management team or all legal or other mm-hmm. things. Like we feel like that's where we can help and help them recruit people. What we, and this is, this is not just me, by the way, this is our philosophy throughout the A16Z just generally is just like, we, we try to invest in technical product founders and then help them with the other stuff as opposed to mm-hmm. a business person. You know, you have the flip side of it, business person who then wants to sort of outsource the technology and product. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of the key thing is just finding people that want to do that. And, and sometimes we can identify them early. Sometimes it takes longer, you know, we make a mistake and come back and realize later that they, they, they're people that we should be involved with. But I think fundamentally, like I think of what we do at its core is a, is a, we're in a venture capital as a talent business. Like we're, we're betting on people and we spend a lot of time in markets and technology and everything else, but it's all just to help us get smarter about ultimately evaluating and helping entrepreneurs, you know, and, and betting on people, you know, so that that's every time I've tried to outsmart, like a a very common thing when you get into this business, if people start angel investing or doing venture capital is they, Mm -hmm. they say, I'm going to be different. I'm going to, I'm going to outsmart it. I'm going to have all these theories about the world and the market. And then go find people to kind of fit into them, um, and it just never works. It, what what actually works is 
finding these kinds of, it's like a truffle hunting thing where you're going out and you're finding these very special people who have a secret and a distinct view of the world and the ability to build something special. And you're just sort of smart enough to, to recognize that when it shows up. Yeah. It's recognizing the right people. Um, are there enough people right now? Are you, what is the sort of pipeline look like relative? Yeah. Relative to six months ago. I mean, there's a lot, you know, we, like we have a Slack channel that kind of goes through it and it's, it's active. I mean, we see a lot of, a lot of, um, entrepreneurs come in. Um, you know, I think, what would I say? I mean, like I said, said, like the, I think it's kind of a, I would say it's sort of a barbell, I guess. Um, and what I mean by that is, is like, if you sort of think of different buckets of people like right out of college, sort of younger, this is their first thing in their career. Then there's people that are maybe coming out of a Google or a traditional tech company and sort of moving over. And then there's sort of super experienced like crypto OGs who are doing something. Um, when I say barbell, what I mean is the first and last categories are going strong and the middle might be weaker. Meaning mm-hmm. the crypto startup school, we put it up there. We get 8,000 applications, very international. I think it was 60, 70% international, you know, high, excuse technical international kids out of college in India. They want to come to the U.S. They want to be part of this. And then you have the sort of like the veterans like David Marcus coming out of Facebook. I think what probably has slowed down is in the middle, which is mm-hmm. we don't see as many people, you know, leaving a traditional tech company and deciding to. Like that's probably the area that slowed down. Yeah, just given sort of the macro picture. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Chris. I appreciate you coming on the show. Hopefully, we'll have you on again. Yeah. You can edify me on all the cr- scary things in AI. <laughs> terrifies me. Maybe I shouldn't be so scared. But um, yeah, once again, we've been joined today by my guest, Chris Dixon, founder and general partner of A16Z Crypto. We appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. All right, thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.